Joe here for episode six of the Upper Memory Block podcast in the midst of what appears to be quite the uh, intense thunderstorm here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So let's hope that uh, things stay up and running. My house usually doesn't have any issues during thunderstorms, but um, let's hope that nothing out of the ordinary occurs and no uh, power goes out or no lightning strikes my house and uh, nothing fries my wonderful uh, Apple-based podcasting setup here today. So anyways, it has been two weeks since I spoke to you guys, and I'm very excited to be back this week with a slightly different episode from uh, from the previous five that we've been covering. Uh, this week, you know, primarily I'm going to talk about how to get games running on, uh, on older machines. But first, uh, the past two weeks have been a little bit busy for me. Um, I'm doing my wife and I actually, my wife Fran and I, are, uh, are training for a 30-kilometer uh, foot race, a 30 kilometer, uh, not quite a marathon, but uh, between a half marathon and a full marathon uh, in August called a Midsummer Night's Run. This is a very, very cool run that's uh, going on August 18th, where we do a 30 kilometer loop around the uh, the eastern beaches here in Toronto. So this should be really nice. You actually run out in a, in a park kind of consisting of a bunch of small islands, which uh, sit out on Lake Ontario, one of the Great Lakes. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. It's uh, it's hard training. I'm training, my wife and I both are training four days a week kind of for this. And uh, as I've said in past podcasts, as usual, I'm uh, I'm a little bit sore, but it's it's really, really rewarding. But uh, it's definitely taken up a lot of time, but all for, uh, for a good cause. It actually is in support of uh, the Sick Kids Foundation here in Toronto. And uh, it's supporting their research into, I believe it's juvenile arthritis. So I'm actually collecting some pledges for that and uh you know hopefully uh hopefully it will be a fun a fun race and good weather and and a good run overall so enough about me um the news actually has been quite active a lot more active than it has been in uh in the recent past over the past two weeks and actually mostly within the past couple of days and surprisingly the news does not revolve solely around uh, Kickstarter projects, but so I don't freak anybody out. The first two bits of news I will, or for the first two bits of news, I will be talking about Kickstarters, just some of the Kickstarters that I've been following. Uh, so first things first, uh, the Tex Murphy Kickstarter that I've been talking about over the past little while is still in progress. They still have nine days left. And uh, their goal is $450,000. And as I check it right now, they are currently at $401,847. So it looks like they're quite, they're on the right track to fund. So, uh, you know, there's still nine days. And even if they fund, they'll still accept your money. So if, uh, if you're a fan of Tex Murphy, like I said last time, uh, feel free to head over to Kickstarter, search for Tex Murphy or Project Fedora, and it'll pop right up. And you can, uh, you can see what there is to see over there. Secondly, with regard to Kickstarter news, as a direct follow-up to the really fun Space Quest episode last week, uh, the two guys from Andromeda Space Venture Project has five days left 
and it is at $353,000 of its $500,000 goal. So now this project has been having uh, has been getting some uh, some good press as of late. Uh, there was actually I'm I'm following this one a little bit more closely because I'm a, as you may have told from last week's episode, I'm a little bit of a Space Quest fan. And there was actually a little bit of a of a kerfuffle uh, within the first two weeks of the Kickstarter, which actually caused uh, the two guys from Andromeda to not be able to do a whole lot of uh, of publicity and not do a whole lot of, you know, getting out there and uh, and and kissing babies and shaking hands and all of that, because I believe the the rumor is at the very least that there was a little bit of a legal issue potentially with the them using uh, their name, the two guys from Andromeda. Now, I don't know any of the details and, you know, the the, the people involved have, have kept a bit quiet about it, but suffice it to say that kind of left um, left the project for two weeks without very much press. So they're a little bit probably behind where, where they otherwise would be right now, but with five days to go and... Uh, about $150,000 left to go with the current, uh, the current rate of, uh, of pledge of pledges coming in. Plus hopefully a little boost at the end. The guys will very hopefully be able to make their $500,000. Now they've been releasing uh, a lot of cool information. They've released at this point, three, uh, three of their cool, uh, flash style or online style, uh, prototypes, which are a lot of fun. They give you a good idea of what the game's going to be like. And in addition, they also released the name of uh, of their new main character. He his name will be Ace Hardway, and he is a space plumber, which is a uh, as you can tell a little bit of a of of a nod to to Roger Wilco and his occupation of space janitor. But Ace Hardway also has a robotic doggy sidekick slash toolbox named Rooter. So this uh, this sounds like a lot of fun. The art looks really cool. So. Just like with the Tex Murphy uh, Kickstarter, if you guys want to go and check things out over at the Space Quest or the Space Venture Kickstarter, you can search for uh, Two Guys from Andromeda or Space Venture or Space Quest on Kickstarter. Or, as I said last week, you can go and check out TGAKick.com. I'm really looking forward to this one, and I really, truly do hope that, uh, that it funds. So, enough about Kickstarter. I think this is almost one of the first time or maybe the second time I have some non-Kickstarter related news. So this is also some stuff that I've covered before, but this week was uh, the the Electronic Entertainment Expo, the E3 conference, 2012 edition. And uh, two game series that I've already covered on the podcast uh, released some, some more information and some cool trailers uh, relating to new games in their series. So firstly, the uh, the SimCity series... As I talked about when I was covering that podcast, there's a new SimCity game coming out slated for 2013, and a really, really cool E3 teaser or preview trailer uh, came out, I believe, earlier this week, maybe on Monday, or maybe even Monday or Tuesday. And, uh, you know, it gives us a lot more peeks into the the really cool SimCity, uh, I believe it's called the Glassbox Game Engine, the, the really awesome graphics and the depths uh, or, and the depth of the uh, of the simulation. So I may have mentioned this in the SimCity episode, but it seems really cool, where you know you're tracking kind of individual stats about almost every building in the city, and uh, you can upgrade the buildings, and everything like that. So uh, you know this looks like it's going to be a really really deep game, a really awesome 
game. But unfortunately, we also did find out, well, unfortunately for some, I don't mind quite so much, but I know there are some people who have strong feelings about it uh, because it's an EA game, or maybe, uh, I guess that's probably the primary reason, but there is apparently going to be some always online DRM, uh, digital rights management in relation to this game. So as I said, I don't really have a huge issue with this. I'm I'm experiencing always online DRM uh, in, in Diablo 3, which I'm playing right now. And, you know, when it works, there's no problem. I guess it's when, when it starts to have issues which stop you from playing the game or say you're traveling and you're not going to be online. You know, these games that don't necessarily need, like SimCity, I don't know, they, they say apparently there is going to be a fairly strong online component to this new SimCity game. But uh, if there isn't, or if I just want to hop in and manage my city and play around a little bit, you know, and I don't necessarily need to interact with uh, with people online, it would be nice if they kind of implemented an offline feature to this game. However, it doesn't look like that's going to be the case because of the digital rights management and the fact that you're going to need to authenticate your game every time you play to kind of prove that, you know, you did in fact purchase it and it is in fact your legal, uh, your legal copy and your legal license of, uh, of the game. So... You know, maybe one of these days we should have a bit of a talk about DRM. I know, uh, I know my friend Tim, who uh, who actually sent in comments about SimCity, will definitely have some some words with regard to this. He has some strong feelings about uh, about always online DRM. And you know, I I as I said, I don't have huge problems with it, but you know, I could see where people are coming from. I could see where you would feel a little bit off you'd feel like maybe electronic arts is treating everyone like they're gonna like they're a potential pirate a potential you know st stealer of of software and uh you know people don't like that they like to be trusted and uh, and everything like that and unfortunately drm these days is a little bit more draconian than it was in uh, in the days of the games that i cover on this show where you know it wasn't even digital rights management it was maybe a manual or a analog rights management where you know, the internet wasn't readily available, so something as simple as, you know, to play this game, tell me what word is on the third line, you know, the fourth word on page seven of the manual, or tell me, you know, what code is on page 37 of the manual, or something like that, or, you know, what's the coordinates of this system, this star system, or something like that. So, you know, obviously, uh, those those copy protection features are, have been rendered quite obsolete by the overabundance of information availability on the internet so they had to go slightly more uh to slightly more drastic measures which uh which has irritated some people but anyways the new sim city game really great trailer i will uh, i will link it in the show notes and uh, you guys can take a look for yourself if you had any interest in any of the sim city games over over the years whatsoever this one looks really really great and uh, i hope you guys will go and check it out uh secondly at e3 the new xcom Enemy Unknown game had a new trailer released as well. And again, similar to SimCity and similar to previous uh, things that we've seen with regard to XCOM Enemy Unknown, there's not much in the way of hard information. But uh, after, you know, playing XCOM and reviewing it for the show and getting kind of refreshed on, on things, the visuals in this teaser trailer do give players some hints as to what the game will be about and what it will contain in relation to kind of the XCOM universe. Uh, you know, you get to see some shots of bases, uh, their makeup, their the bases facilities. I know you definitely saw a really cool version of, uh, of Alien Containment. 
you got to see kind of interceptors launching that look really cool, different vehicles, different, you know, your different units, your different weapons. Uh, but you can definitely see through this kind of teaser trailer, teaser video, uh, where they've taken elements of the original game and just kind of punched them up a little bit, made them look really cool. And, um, you know, hopefully they will take, in addition to those visual elements, a lot of the gameplay elements from the original game to make it just as fun and as challenging and as, I guess you could say, frustrating in a good way as uh, as the original game was. So I will keep everyone, I will continue to keep everyone posted on uh, on that stuff. So before we get to today's main topic, which is going to be all about uh, trying to get old games running on your new machines or your new hardware, uh, I did want to talk really quickly about one interesting game that I played this week. Now the reason I'm not doing a whole episode on it is uh, because this uh, this game, or actually this series of games, technically does not really fall into the uh, the time frame of games that I cover. So the series of games, the, the bundle of games together is called the Blackwell Bundle. And uh, these are a series of very fun adventure games. These games came out, the first of these games came out in 2006, which is obviously way past, you know, the time frame of games that I cover. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up is because these games are, uh, are they're, they're indie games and they are created in the style of, uh, of old, say you know, early to mid-90s adventure games, even to the extent of having the graphics rendered in 320 by 200, 256 color VGA. They have kind of the point-and-click interface that I talked about last week that was introduced a little closer, you know, to like Space Quest 4 and things like that. And these are really, really cool games. The first uh, the first game is called The Blackwell Legacy. And uh, you play, you're, the main character that you play is named uh, Rosa Blackwell, and she is a struggling writer in New York City. And the first game starts with her last, uh, you know, older living relative having passed away, and she's actually uh, in New York City at the waterfront spreading uh, her, I believe it's her aunt, her, her aunt's ashes into the water. And, uh, you know, things kind of progress from there, and uh, she finds out that... Um, she has a family legacy of, uh, you know, the women in her family are actually mediums. And uh, there is a, a ghost, a family ghost that kind of um, follows them around. And, uh, and they have a mission to, uh, to help wayward spirits kind of move on to the next life. Now, I know this does sound a little bit like it's been done before. But, uh, you know, the storytelling in these games is very, very, very well done. The graphics are really great looking. You know, given the constraints that the, that the developer decided to work within. And, uh, you know, the music in this game is really incredible. And also the follow-up games. And, uh, you know, the voice acting, while not perfect and not up to super professional levels, is generally very, very good. Uh, these This bundle of games is available on, uh, on GOG.com, good old games. Uh, it was on sale recently. I don't believe it is anymore. But, uh, you know, if you are in, in the mood to uh, try out an old-style point-and-click adventure game that you've never really tried before because, well, it only came out in 2006, then uh, then give the Blackwell Bundle a look on, uh, on GOG.com. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... 
All right, so this is our first tech focus episode. So like I said, this week, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to talk about a uh, an old DOS and early Windows video game. We are going to talk about how to run these awesome old games on your modern new computer systems. So obviously, in researching these games for uh, for the podcast, you know, I haven't had to I haven't had to just run off of my memories of playing them. And in situations like XCOM where I didn't play the game, I, I needed to play these games to, to gather some thoughts about them and remind myself about, you know, what was good about them, what was bad about them. And so this obviously presents a little bit of a problem because many of these games, for example, you know, Space Quest 1 from last week, even, you know, Sam and Max Hit the Road, a lot of these games were, were designed to be run on the first real IBM PC computers, like the IBM... PC. So for example, as I said, Space Quest 1, here are Space Quest 1's system requirements from Wikipedia. So Space Quest 1 required minimum specs to run an 8088 or 8086 CPU, 256 kilobytes of RAM, CGA, EGA, Hercules, or Tandy slash PC Junior graphics, and PC speaker, Tandy, digital audio controller, or Tandy, PC Junior sound card. Now these are very, very modest, let's say, specifications. So if we go back to the CPU, uh, even though the number is bigger, the 8088 was actually kind of a budget chip in comparison to the 8086, and it was the first processor that was in the original IBM PC, which was released in 1981. Uh, the 8088 ranged in clock speed from 5 to 10 megahertz, and reportedly could perform in the range of 330,000 to 1 million instructions per second, and it could address a whopping 1 megabyte, not gigabyte, that's a megabyte of memory, though it only used the first 640k for running programs. The remaining uh, amount of memory was used for uh, for things like uh, addressing hardware and, and other things like that. So that's, you know, when we have Bill Gates saying 640K should be enough for anyone, well, that's the 640K of memory that he was talking about. So, you know, this PC doesn't sound so incredibly impressive, but, you know, that was all well and good. And even up five years later in 1986, when the first Space Quest was released, uh, games were designed to run on this thing. However, Today, uh, the gaming rig I have sitting on my desk in, in my basement is an Intel Core i7-860. This thing runs at 2.8 gigahertz. It has four CPU cores, four physical CPU cores with hyper-threading that again splits these four physical cores into eight virtual cores and reportedly performs around, and I'm not even sure what this number really means, but try and write it down. It performs 90,000 million instructions per second, approximately, in comparison to the 8088's 330,000 to 1 million. So this is many, many, many orders of magnitude faster. Uh, realistically, my CPU can, my current CPU can address about 16 gigabytes of memory, theoretically being 64-bit. It can address much more than that, but on a reasonable level, about 16 gigs is what it can handle. So as I said, many orders of magnitude faster than the original PC. On top of this, despite the fact that both DOS and today's current version of Windows, being Windows 7 and soon to be Windows 8, are both made by Microsoft, DOS is a 16-bit operating system, and my version of Windows 7 is a 64-bit 
operating system. So at this point, you know, the, the addressing is different. The base instructions are different. You know, Windows 7 can hardly even, can't even understand programs that were made to run in DOS. So as I said, these two facts lead us to two major problems trying to get DOS games to run on my modern 64-bit computer. So like I just said, 64-bit versions of Windows do not run old 16-bit DOS programs. Microsoft had decided that enough was enough, and uh, they removed support for this ever since Windows XP 64-bit edition. But Joe, you ask, uh, what about 32-bit Windows? Can't it run DOS programs? And well, if you ask me that question, you are indeed very astute. Yes, 32-bit versions of Windows do indeed contain what is called NTVDM, or the NT Virtual DOS Machine. So this allows people running 32-bit versions of Windows to run DOS programs in an emulator. And I will explain to you what an emulator is shortly. So with that in mind, it's obvious, Joe, just downgrade your computer to 32-bit Windows. Well, no. And uh, here's why. Firstly, my computer has 8 gigs of RAM. 32-bit uh, operating systems can only support up to 4 gigabytes of RAM because in a 32-bit binary number, uh, you can only have up to 2 to the power of 32 addresses, which means you can only address up to 4 gigs of RAM. So the computer is not capable of addressing more than that, which means that if I had 8 gigs of RAM, on a 32-bit operating system, I would lose access to half of my RAM, which would be a waste of my money, and I don't like doing that. And I did do that inadvertently on my laptop <laughs> before, because it's running 32-bit Windows XP, and I decided to throw a whole whack of RAM in it and realized, hey, why is this only showing me that I have four gigs of RAM? That's not cool. So, you know, I wouldn't want to lose half my RAM because as much as I love doing this podcast, I do also play modern games on this thing. Like, what would I do without my Diablo 3 right now? And, you know, I do a whole bunch of other stuff like Photoshop and blah, blah. That requires a lot of RAM. So, nope, that's not an option for me. And even if I decided to go ahead and, uh, and downgrade to 32-bit Windows, uh, my first point from earlier rears its ugly head. My computer, my, you know, i7 downstairs is infinitely faster than anything that existed, than anything that was even dreamed of during the time frame of the games I cover on this show. So even if we could launch the game at all, it would most likely run so fast as to be unplayable. Okay, so what do we do? Well, there's the hard way to do this, which I've been doing for fun, which was to, uh, to build my kind of legacy DOS and Windows gaming machine. So, you know, you can go in about and do this yourself if you want. You can try and scrounge up a bunch of legacy parts and build a machine appropriate for games of, of a certain time. But... Even that kind of has its limitations. For example, the rig that I've set up for my podcast, for kind of my podcast gaming rig, is a Pentium 2. Now, that's quite an old machine. It was, you know, pretty relatively modern around 1998. But uh, honestly, even a Pentium 2 is still pretty fast to play a game like Space Quest 1 or King's Quest 1 or, you know, any game that came out, you know, 10 years before even this processor was, was envisioned. So there are other ways to get around this. There's other utilities you can download to slow things out. And for me, it's a fun solution because I, I had a lot of fun putting things together and scrounging things together and reminiscing about, you know, cutting my finger, which I did do on the jagged inside of the metal case and all that. But this is not really a perfect solution. It can be not a very cheap solution, and it can also be not a very flexible solution. 
So what do we do? Well, this brings us to emulation. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what is emulation? Well, put simply, because we can go into, I can go back to, to comp sci class and, and system hardware, system software, you know, classes and all that. But put simply, uh, an emulator is either hardware, software, or a combination thereof that performs the functions of one type of computer system on a different type of computer system. So in our case, what we want to do is we want a software program that will emulate the functions of the 16-bit DOS operating system. So this means that whatever operating system is actually running on our physical computer, be it Windows, be it Linux, be it OS X, whatever, a program, and you know, let's stick with Space Quest 1 as our example because it's a good one. Uh, so any program opened from within the emulator will think it's running on a 16-bit DOS computer. So as we go on, we'll talk more about specifics, including the ability to emulate specific pieces of hardware, throttle back performance, and all that to, to make things run at playable speeds. So where is emulation used? So emulation is actually used quite a bit in large corporations where IT infrastructure might get upgraded, but software required to do business does not necessarily get updated. So, you know, say you work at like a big manufacturing company and you guys make widgets, you know, so say you have an old style inventory system from, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, something like that, that was built to run on DOS. Well, over time, the company's computers would obviously get upgraded, but setting up a whole new inventory system might cost millions of dollars for the company that the company doesn't have. And, you know, it may take a lot of time and downtime that the company doesn't have. So instead what they do is they upgrade their hardware and they set up emulators which allow the old system to kind of continue to run even though technically it shouldn't be able to run on this you know new advanced hardware. It's pretty cool, huh? So this gives the company time to implement something new or you know just keep going on with the if it ain't broke don't fix it mentality. <laughs> if you knew how old the software that most banks run to manage your bank accounts and manage your investments are, you might decide to hide your savings under your mattress because these things are old. But you know what? They work. So again, if it ain't broke, don't touch it, especially when it comes to people's money and things like that. So in addition to you know the enterprise, uh, emulation is also quite popular, obviously, in the retro gaming space. Uh, there's many different emulators out there. Some are free, some are paid, uh, which allow you to play old games from a wide variety of, of systems, from kind of old arcade classics on uh, on an emulator known as MAME to, uh, you know, there's one called Nesticle, which, uh, which does uh, old NES games all the way through, you know, the kind of original NES, the Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, Nintendo, Wii, up until current gen consoles like the PS3 and Xbox 360. Emulation is also used by current gen console developers to uh, in their development processes. So when, you know, say, um, okay, let's just stick with Microsoft. Say Microsoft is developing a cool new game for, uh, for the Xbox 360, well, they're not going to sit there and install the game on an Xbox 360 over and over again. They're going to have a, a development computer 
with an Xbox environment emulator on it where they can deploy their you know current code or their current build of the game and they can test it without having to I don't know somehow put it on an, X, an actual Xbox or burn it to a disc or something like that. They just run it on their computer in an emulator. So this, of course, on top of console gaming and old uh, arcade games, would include uh, DOS games. And so for this podcast, I'm going to concentrate mostly on two solutions that do the same thing in very different ways. The first one is DOSBox, and the second one is called Scum VM. I'll start with DOSBox. DOSBox is probably the most popular and versatile DOS emulator geared towards gaming. Uh, it was originally released in 2002 and was originally programmed by Peter Wienstra. It has since been taken over. In addition to him, there's also what is called the DOSBox team that, that manages it. Uh, it's written primarily in the C++ programming language and is freely distributable under the GNU public license, which you can go and research if you want to. Basically, it means that uh, you're allowed to use the thing for free and uh, you can't sell it, but you can distribute it anywhere else as long as it remains free and open source. Contact a lawyer if you want to know more. So DOSBox is a full CPU emulator, which can run DOS programs in both real mode and protected mode. So older games like Space Quest 1 ran in real mode, which means that they could only address that first one megabyte of memory on a computer system. Later games like Wing Commander and SimCity 2000 ran in protected mode, which allowed them to access memory above one megabyte. If you pay attention to kind of when, especially I believe SimCity 2000, when it starts, it actually loads up this thing and there's a, there's a message just as it loads that says DOS forward slash GW protected mode runtime enabled. So that means that the program has now entered protected mode and it can access whatever memory the computer has available for it. Uh, not only can it do this, but it can also throttle your computer's performance to mimic the speed of much older processors. Uh, so on top of this full CPU emulation, it can also emulate a variety of older hardware. This allows the games to leverage their own internal drivers for common sound cards and video cards and peripherals. Two important examples of this are video and sound. So DOSBox can emulate graphics hardware, such as Hercules, CGA, EGA, VGA, and uh, VESA, or Super VGA. So one cool thing that DOSBox supports in its, video in, in its video emulation is the concept of a scaler. So these days we all have very large high resolution screens running in resolutions like 1280 pixels by 1024 pixels or 1920 by 1080 full HD. Old games were not really designed to run on screens of A, this size, and B, of this resolution. I remember even my old Pentium 200, which at the time was quite the uh, impressive machine, had a 15-inch CRT monitor that could support maybe 800 by 600 resolution. And, you know, games like Space Quest 1 or you know, older games kind of in the from the mid to late 80s ran even lower than than VGA and EGA but at, uh, what was it, 160 by 200, I think it said. Moving further into the 90s, we had a lot of games in VGA at 320 by 200. So scaling that low resolution up to, you know, 24-inch widescreen monitor or 27-inch widescreen monitor or a 30-inch cinema display monitor would make these games look pretty awful. 
they become very pixelated and really, really jaggy. And, you know, it actually at a certain point would become hard to discern what, what the graphics were supposed to look like. So in comes the scaler, which acts as kind of a filter that reprocesses the emulated screen before it's actually drawn onto the monitor. So depending on the type of the scaler you choose, there's a whole bunch of different options that have a whole bunch of different effects. Uh, the graphics can appear much smoother than they otherwise would, which I think is pretty cool. So DOSBox, in addition to emulating different types of graphics chipsets and scaling them appropriately and all that, it can very interestingly emulate a wide variety or a wide range of era-appropriate sound hardware, such as, you know, the original first couple of cards from the Sound Blaster family, the Gravis Ultrasound, the Disney Sound Source, the AdLib, and of course the PC Speaker. And most interesting to me, because I'm really into uh, into video game, this old video game music, it can emulate a um, Roland MPU 401 MIDI interface. MPU means MIDI processing unit. And uh, that simulated MIDI output, or that simulated MIDI port, can actually talk to a physical external device, like one of the really awesome Roland units that I keep trying to get my hands on on eBay that I totally missed last night. Uh, and it can actually talk to them if they're plugged in, you know, via a MIDI interface or via the USB port on your modern machine. DOSBox will be able to translate its output to kind of the, the older Roland unit connected to your computer and make it do stuff. I think that's really, really, really cool. The other cool thing about the way this works is that you can actually just tell DOSBox, you know what, pretend I have all of this sound hardware. Pretend I have a Sound Blaster. Pretend I have a Gravis Ultrasound. Pretend I have, you know, maybe I really have a Roland MT32 sitting beside my computer, or maybe I have an emulator there. So you just say, turn it all on, pretend I have it, and uh, DOSBox can auto-detect which devices are compatible with which game and use whichever works best. So it's like I said, having all the sound devices installed in your computer once and allowing you to choose, uh, you know, which one you want to use. Now, like I said, the only thing it will not emulate directly are these Roland MIDI devices like the MT32 or the CM32 or the CM64. Uh, it's not because it's not capable of doing so, because in fact, there are actually some builds of DOSBox that include this stuff, but it's actually a legal issue because to make these things work, you actually don't necessarily need the hardware, but you need the ROM, the read-only memory, the firmware that is on these machines to make them work. And there's a copyright issue taking those off and including them. So like I said, there's an unofficial build of DOSBox, which includes these, but I haven't gotten around to trying it yet because I'm trying to get my hands on the real thing. So in addition to video and sound, DOSBox also has modem support which can be used to play multiplayer games on a LAN or over the internet by interfacing with the host computer's network card, kind of in the same way that I explained it could interface with an external MIDI device. So that's that's the cool thing about emulation. Like it, the emulation layer has DOS sitting inside of it and has, say, Windows 7 sitting on the outside of it, and the emulator's job, kind of the barrier between the two systems, it's its job to translate things that come out of the emulator to make it you know, understandable by the modern operating system. So say the emulator puts out video signal in whatever format it pretends you know, that it's using, be, say it's EGA, it has to tell Windows to tell you know, your crazy ATI graphics card that it needs to put out this resolution and that stuff and that stuff. So you know, it's this really cool kind of translation that's constantly going on from the old operating system through this translation layer of the emulator 
out to your modern operating system. So I think that's a really cool thing. And I just, you know, when you really get down and you really think about it, it's impressive that that we can do these things and make this old stuff run. Because honestly, frankly, it should not. These computers do not speak the same language as they used to at all. They're infinitely more complex. They're infinitely faster, but somehow we can muck around and we can fake it and say, well, you know, you're talking, you know, you're speaking Latin from a thousand years ago. And, uh, you know, this computer speaks English, but, you know, here's a translator. You can understand it. I, you know, maybe that's not a good analogy, but I think it's pretty impressive. So in addition to all the network stuff and other small cool features that it does are the ability to capture screenshots from the games and even record video, which is actually something that is interesting for me to try. Maybe I'll put out some videos of these old games as the, uh, as the podcast comes out. I'll start a YouTube channel and do a little bit of that. I know people have done that in the past, but I think it would be a cool little supplement for, uh, for the shows. So I'm definitely going to give that a go. So I've chatted a bit about DOSBox and how, you know, all its features and all its coolness and, and all that, but how do you actually play a game using DOSBox? Well, again, there's a few ways to go about it. If you're comfortable on the DOS command line, which if you played DOS games back in the day, you may very well be, uh, this is kind of the most direct and basic way to go about it. If you're not, if you're a Windows user, if you're not comfortable, if you don't remember DOS commands, uh, things like that, there are quite a few graphical front ends for DOSBox available. I use one called Defend Reloaded, that's D-Fend, Reloaded, which you can, uh, which is linked off of DOSBox's site. For when I'm feeling too lazy to deal with the command line and I don't really feel like messing around and I just want things to work. I'm going to first talk about the, the command line stuff. But, so obviously step one is to download the latest version of DOSBox from their site, DOSBox.com. Uh, once this is done and it's installed, if you're running Windows, you can just download the Windows installer, which is an executable, and you just download it and double click it and boom, it installs and that's wonderful. You get that, you install it, and uh, you have a DOSBox icon on your desktop. So you start DOSBox by, of course, double-clicking on the DOSBox icon. Now this opens the main DOSBox window, which looks surprisingly like DOS. However, the first thing you see is not the regular C colon slash bracket that you, uh, you were used to seeing in DOS. In fact, you see Z colon slash bracket. And uh, if you look around, you don't have access to your actual hard drive. This is DOSBox's kind of little virtual default hard drive, which has the files that it needs to run. So the first step to getting started is to mount a directory on your hard drive into DOSBox. So mounting is, uh, is, is I believe it's a Unix term, which basically means making a resource available to your system via a path. So to make this easier, it's usually recommended to put all of your DOS games into one single folder on your hard drive. Let's say in the root of your C drive, you, you know, you put everything in C colon slash DOS games. So then in DOSBox, in the little DOSBox window, you type something to the effect of mount C space C colon slash DOS games. So what this does is it mounts or it associates the directory, actually maybe a better term is it maps, it will map the directory C colon slash DOS games on your physical hard drive to the fake path of C, so the C drive within DOSBox's emulator. And you can also do the same thing for your optical drive if you're trying to play a game off of a CD by typing 
mount d d colon slash dash t cd-rom provided your cd dvd rom blu-ray drive is uh is your d drive on windows 7 you know if it's your e drive or your f drive you would say mount d f colon slash so the first letter is the drive letter within dosbox and the second you know letter colon slash path is the physical path on your computer so that's pretty cool and you can do all kinds of stuff you know you can you can mount different areas and you can get really complicated with it, but you don't need to. If you put everything in one place, you just have to mount one thing. If you need a CD-ROM, you can mount another thing and boom, that's it. So now that your games are accessible, you can switch to, uh, to your fake C drive and you can navigate around just like you did back in DOS. So to change drives, you type C colon slash and say we have Space Quest 1, you know, within that DOS games directory in another directory called SQ1. You'd simply type cd slash sq1, and then the directory that you're currently in would change to the sq1 directory. Then you would type dir to, uh, to list the files in the directory, and then the fun part of finding the executable to start the game. So this is usually a file that starts, it's something.com.bat or .exe. So since Space Quest 1 is a very old game, uh, this actually uses a .com file, which is a dos.command file. So we see sq.com, so you just have to type sq, and boom! Space Quest 1 should start up, and you should hear the fun PC speaker music and all that. Now, this does sound like it's a decent amount of work every time you start DOSBox. So, uh, you know, you don't need to do this every time. You can actually automate the mounting of drives and uh, the device setup and all this within a file in DOSBox called dosbox.conf. Again, .conf is kind of like a, a another Unix term, which is a configuration file, so .conf. Uh, so DOSBox looks at dosbox.conf by default when it starts up. So you can have this one to have kind of a general setup for, uh, for your DOSBox environment in general, but you can also have separate configuration files per game. And all you need to do is when you start up DOSBox in its command line, kind of in its Windows icon, you can specify which config file you want DOSBox to load when you start it up. There's a very, very complete set of documents on how to do all of this on DOSBox's site. I mean, I could get into incredible detail, but that would probably be incredibly, incredibly dull. So if you're interested in that, again, documentation on DOSBox.com. So a cool thing here is if, you know, once you get into your game and you start playing it, if you're experiencing slowdowns, or if the game is running too fast, you can dynamically adjust the virtual CPU speed by hitting Control 11 or Control F12. Uh, if things are still slow, say you've kind of sped things up as much as you can, but the games are still running slow, uh, you can also enable frame skipping, which will uh, tell DOSBox, well, instead of rendering every frame for the game, you know, maybe render every second or third frame, and this will take a lot of load off of your CPU. Because interestingly, even though you are slowing things down a lot, running an emulator actually does use up a lot more resources. It's a lot, it's a lot heavier than just running something natively. So you still have Windows running kind of in the background, and then you're running a whole nother machine in this little emulation layer. And so, you know, it, it may, it may you know, take up a, a quite a few resources on your machine. Now on modern CPUs, like on my i7 or on a Core 2 Duo or something, even, you know, even something like a Pentium 4, this probably won't be an issue. But if you're doing a lot of other stuff, and I know uh, on slower machines, if you're running kind of a software sound emulator that uses up resources, so, you know, it can add up. So you do have the ability to uh, 
to make the thing run a little lighter if you need to. So the command line is not the only way to make things work in DOSBox. Um, a lot of this command line config file settings.conf unixy texty stuff can be simplified by using a graphical front end such as, like I said, defend, which is the one that I've used. All, defend puts all the options in, uh, in a menu tree and the front end adjusts the config files for you. Now this is much easier, involves a lot less reading, a lot less trial and error. However, it's a bit more limited in what you can do. Uh, using the front end doesn't preclude you from still going in and manually modifying the setup files yourself, in fact. Uh, and defend has an option to simply open the config file in a text editor kind of on its own. Now, so that's DOSBox in a nutshell. That's the full emulation solution. It's quite flexible. You can do many things with it. Uh, some people even go as far as installing Windows 3.1 on it and uh, using it for other DOS-based applications aside from games. I know some people that still create MIDI music with older hardware like to use some DOS-based programs that they've used in the past. And, uh, you know, without too much trouble, DOSBox does allow for that to happen. And so DOSBox has, in fact, been leveraged by, by game companies. Most any old game you download from Steam or GOG.com or anything like that comes with a pre-packaged uh, DOSBox installation, which is tweaked by the developer to make the game run with minimal issues. This is how I play most of the games that I've covered on the show thus far. Uh, again, if you have an independent DOSBox installation, you can easily run the games with that one instead of using the pre-packaged version. And uh, this generally tends to... Uh, to work better because the packaged one, I know GOG.com, for example, uses DOSBox 0.72 and the latest version is DOSBox 0.74. So, you know, there's a couple of bug fixes in there. And I know specifically when I was running the older Space Quest games for last week's uh, episode, you know, Space Quest 4, 5, and 6, the default DOSBox installation actually had a couple of issues and uh, if I ran them externally using my newer DOSBox install and tweaked a couple of settings, they ran very well. With the default install, they crashed a little bit, the colors were off sometimes, and things like that. So it does help if you are, you know, even if you're buying these games from Steam or GOG, to understand how this DOSBox thing works, because frankly, even whether you like it or not, this is how your games are running if you're buying them. So um, the leveraging of DOSBox by these game companies really has helped DOSBox become the de facto standard for DOS game for you know for DOS game emulation platforms. There are others, but they don't have the widespread adoption and the community support that uh, that DOSBox has. You are listening to the Upper Podcast. So now on to our second contender for. Uh, for getting our DOS games to run on our modern machines, uh, Scum VM. So Scum VM is another more limited but much more user-friendly option. Scum VM does the same thing that DOSBox does, which is basically gets old games running on modern machines, but it does it in a very different and I think very interesting way. So instead of providing emulation of a full DOS environment, it's much more tailored to running very specific games. Uh, ScumVM effectively is a collection of recreated game engines modified to run on a variety of modern systems, like I said, Windows and Linux and OS X, and you know the same kind of uh, the same kind of platforms that DOSBox runs on. So when you load a game into ScumVM, 
the app basically what it does is it replaces the original core game engine files with its own newer game engine files and then it only uses the original the original game resources so things like you know scripted events or the graphics and the sound so ScumVM was originally released back in 2001 and has seen very consistent development with a release that is as recent as January 2012. So the name of this app might jog your memory a little bit. If you listened to me way back in episode one, when I talked about Sam and Max Hit the Road, you may recall that at the end of the show, I specifically talked about the Scum, S-C-U-M-M, game engine that LucasArts used to create its adventure game. Uh, Scum means script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, uh, the original intent of the Scum VM project was to provide a version of the underlying Scum engine that would run on new machines. So as I said, the games that Scum VM support are much more limited. They're limited to mostly adventure games. Uh, originally, when it first came out in 2001, it only supported LucasArts Scum-based adventure games like uh, Sam and Max at the Road, like I already covered, Day of the Tentacle, Loom, uh, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, and all these other really fun LucasArts adventure games like that. Uh, over time, other adventure games such as Sierra's AGI and SCI-based games like Space Quest, King's Quest, Police Quest, Quest for Glory, etc., 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 have been added to the ScumVM support system. So to get a game to be compatible with ScumVM, a bit more work has to be done on the development side. So the actual core of Scum VM itself needs to be updated. This isn't something that you know regular users are going to do, which is probably why it's updated a bit more frequently. So this upfront compatibility makes it very, very easy to, to run the games as a user, but obviously much more difficult on the side of the Scum VM developers because they you know, have to do all the work to get things running right. So basically all you do is say you have, you know, say I have the disc-based version of Sam and Max Hit the Road and I want to get that running on my Scum VM machine. So it's really simple. I don't have to run the game installer. I don't have to do anything like that. I have to take the game discs, somehow put them into my computer. Okay, maybe I don't want to use the game discs. Maybe I want to use the CD-ROM <laughs> or, you know, maybe you can get it from somewhere. All you have to do is take the files and copy them to your computer. And then once that's done, you open up uh, Scum VM and uh, you add the game via its interface and then you hit start and boom the game will just run no tweaking config files or anything else there's a couple of options just like in dosbox for scaling graphics and you know choosing sound quality and all of that but there's much 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 less and honestly most of the time everything just works with the default settings uh, scumvm can be downloaded at its site scumvm.org that's s-c-u-m-m-v-m.org so that's a really, really cool system. It's really different. It, uh, it does the same thing in a really cool and different way. So which one's better? You know, what's better? DOS, should I use DOSBox? Should I use ScumVM? Well, you know, frankly, I find it really hard to say. Uh, they both have their advantages and their disadvantages. You know, if you really love getting into the nuts and bolts of things and tweaking settings and trying to get things run in a different way than everyone else and, you know, trying a whole bunch of different options and you want to support the widest variety of games possible, then DOSBox is probably the way to go. Now, if you want to run a more limited range of games and you want them to just simply work, then, you know, try ScumVM. Personally, I run both. They're both free, so you don't lose anything in trying them both. And, uh, you know, honestly, I really do enjoy running these LucasArts games in ScumVM uh, a little bit better. I find they run a bit better. Maybe I'm just out to lunch, but 
Who knows? Uh, so aside from these two, obviously there's other options out there as well. Feel free to poke around, feel free to experiment. That's what makes this whole environment so much fun. There's all kinds of different ways to do things. There's all kinds of different tweaks to get things running properly. And uh, you know, if you really love experimenting, then this is a really great way to go about doing that. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over the counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and Blackberry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by Jewelbeat.com So I received a voicemail this week from Dan where he talks a little bit about his experience both with retro gaming and with uh, emulation. So let's give that a listen. Hi Joe, Daniel Vieira here from Dangelus.com. I'm the um, the host of Out of Range Podcast and Technocratic. And I just got to say, I really love your show. I was quite intrigued when you uh, first decided you were going to do this, and I've loved every single show ever since. Now, I'm not a massive gamer myself, um, but being a geek, I'm always interested in, in, in that side of things and the technical side and the history of it, and I find it fascinating. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. Now, I was really um, excited when you decided you were going to do um, a show on emulation and that sort of thing, because, um, to be honest, when I was younger, I did play a few games, but I've never been a massive gamer, uh, and I didn't, I couldn't really afford a lot of games when I was a kid. Um, I didn't have a PC uh, when I was a kid. You know, you've mentioned the BBC Micro on your show before, and um, we had those at school when I was at school, and I've actually got a my only PC or computer qualification was, was gained on a BBC Micro. I was a lot older when I got my first PC. But I did have, um, I didn't have a BBC Micro because they were really expensive, you know, the schools were using them. But I did have a, a Commodore 16 and then an Amiga. And after the Amiga, that's when I got my PC. So my early stuff was all on computers that were, you know, they'd boot up to a prompt and you had to do stuff, you had to load stuff into them and, you know, there were no hard drives and stuff. So um, when I got uh, more modern PCs later on, then a lot of the things I w wanted to do was 
try and emulate some of the old systems. I never really had a lot of patience for games as a kid, but um, one of the, the genres of games I really did enjoy playing were um, text adventures. Now, um, these were on the systems I had, like I said, the Commodore 16. There was, there was, it was literally a text adventure. There was no graphics at all. So you'd get a prompt saying, "I'm in a room, and there's an exit north. There's a table and a, a, a knife on the table, or something like that." It's very descriptive, and you used to, um, you know, you used to have to uh, work your way around by deciphering uh, what was going on. And I used to love those games, particularly um, there was a set of games which were from the Marvel comic games. Uh, called Quest Probe. I used to love those. Uh, there was a Spider-Man one. I think there was a, a Hulk one, and a, I think there was another one. But there, there were the two I played. And um, when I got a PC, I found that there was a an interpreter for those type of games, because basically it runs on a Z machine, the the system it used to run on, and it's it's very portable. So you, there's there's emulators for that on pretty much any platform, including. Um, the iPad, which I which I now play quite a few of these games when I have a bit of time to kill. On the iPad, there's an app called Frotz, F-R-O-T-Z, and it has a, a huge list of games built into it that you can you can download into it. And there's also a, a, a sneaky way of side loading other games into it if you if you read up on it. And it's a, it's really great. Now, obviously, we're at a point now where that you know. And this is all your whole show is about older games, you know, specifically for PC. But we're in a similar situation now where we're emulating uh, those environments of the older machines to to optimize the the running of older games on on new systems. And obviously, there are different ways that you can do that. Um, you've talked about um, DOSBox quite a lot, and I think that's the standard way of doing it. Um, some people. Um, and I, you know, I've tried this as well. Some people use some sort of VM software, virtualization software like VirtualBox or VMware, and they will um, virtualize a whole operating system and then add games onto that just to keep a clean, in, sandboxed environment for their game. Uh, I don't got quite go that far. I've been messing about with DOSBox, and it's it's pretty cool. I quite enjoy it. Having an iPad, I was quite intrigued when they released a. A version of DOSBox for that, which was called iDOS. It's basically a port of DOSBox with um, some iOS stuff added to it. And um, when it originally came out, um, you could sideload stuff onto it. So people were, <laughs> you could go into iTunes and um, basically, um, you know, in iTunes where you've got um, some programs you can actually add a content to in the apps section and you can add, upload. Um, content to a particular apps. So with this, you could actually upload games, and some people were uploading Windows 3.11 <laughs> and got that running on an iPad. Eventually, um, Apple shut it down. They um, they they took it off. Uh, the developer then um, blocked that particular function, and all was well for a little while. It was back in the App Store, uh, but then. There's a, a third-party sof software called um, iExplorer. I think it used to be called iPod Explorer or something like that, which uh, could access certain parts of the the um, iPad or iPhone hard disk and make it appear as like a external storage on a PC. And um, you could actually sideload games that way. Now, this wasn't the developer's fault. The, this, the software would could sideload stuff into anything, but for some reason, Apple 
blocked the uh, the app again. So ever since then, it's gone on to um, to the jailbreak community, and it's available as an app called DOSPad. I've got it on my on my iPad. I've actually even got the uh, the second version of iDOS on there, um, which is the you know because I managed to snag it before they took it off. Um, but obviously with DOS, since my iPad is jailbroken, um, DOSPad is a lot easier to use because you can just add it from other apps and things. And it works really, really well. You can um, change, it's pretty much uh, an interface for, Do for DOSBox and it works really, really well. I've tried a couple of little games on there like um, Leisure Suit Larry and um, I tried Summer Max after your, uh, your Summer Max show. I'm trying at the moment to get um, Star Trek 25th Anniversary running on it, and I've got it running, but it's not particularly suited to the iPad, I don't think, and I can't get the uh, the the CD quality sound to work with it for some reason, so I'm still working on that. If anybody wants to uh, try, a, let's say, a version of DOSBox on the iPad, which is, you know, it's quite a handy little and quite a powerful little portable system, especially for old games. If, if Apple would allow it, well, they don't really allow emulation at all. Um, obviously, you'd have to be jailbroken, but if you are jailbroken, I, I would de definitely recommend trying out DOSPad to play your games. Anyway, thanks for everything, Joe. You're doing a great job, and I'll speak to you soon. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for that. Um, you know, Thanks for letting me know about all the iOS stuff. Uh, my, my iPad is not jailbroken, so uh, I, I haven't really looked into the whole Cydia store and, and all of its... All of its semi-legal wonders, or, you know, not semi-legal, it's, it's all good, but <laughs> anyways, that does sound very interesting. And, you know, you bring up Star Trek 25th Anniversary, that was one, it's, it's definitely a game that sticks out in my mind, and it's something that I will have to cover one of these days on the, uh, on the show. So thanks again for that voicemail, and if you guys want to send me a voicemail, as usual, you can send me a voicemail about, doesn't need to be what we're talking about this week, it could be on anything. Uh, you know, send, send all your emails to podcast at umbcast.com. So that'll do it for another show. Uh, I, I thought this was going to be a shorter show, but it turns out that it is of a standard length. So I hope I didn't get too overly technical and, uh, that everyone enjoyed themselves. So let me know if you guys like these kind of more techie shows by, again, sending me an email, podcast at umbcast.com. And next week, in honor of its 20th anniversary, I will be covering the groundbreaking first-person shooter from 1992, id Software's Wolfenstein 3D. I'm going to have a real good time from this one. I have a lot of fond memories of, of blowing away Nazis and uh, also a lot of not-so-fond memories of uh, headaches from uh, playing the game way too much. So that is that. You can, of course, find more info over at umbcast.com. You can find the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow. And you can follow me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. And, of course, you can join us in the Facebook group over at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You really should come join the Facebook group. That's where, you know, our listeners and myself post things that, you know, interesting news items they come across uh, anything they come across about old gaming and, and anything like that and deals from, you know, GOG and Steam and, and all those things. So it's a real good time over there, facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. And finally, you can find the show on iTunes. If you uh, would like to, I would ask that you drop a, uh, a little podcast review over there on your respective country's iTunes store. The more 
reviews I have over there, the better it is to get the show discovered by, uh, by new folks. And of course, you can stream the show live over at Stitcher Radio if you just search for the Upper Memory Block podcast on uh, Stitcher's website or the Stitcher app on your various forms of mobile devices. So that's that. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time for Wolfenstein 3D here in the Upper Memory Block. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.